Imagine you're at a family reunion, regaling relatives with stories about your shared past experiences. Is there a difference between the stories you might tell or how you might tell them with your grandparents present versus those you would tell if it was just your siblings and cousins? We are all very selective in what we remember and forget and the personal narratives that we craft. But the fuller truth of our pasts is often much messier than we usually relate. But it's in this unvarnished complexity the most powerful, albeit uncomfortable, lessons reside. Welcome to Writing Westward. I'm your host, Brendan Rensink. And this month, we speak with historian Peter Bogue about his 2022 book, Pioneering Death, The Violence of Boyhood in Turn-of-the-Century Oregon. And we discuss some of these differences between the selectively rosy public memory and the messier realities of history. Thanks for listening. For new listeners, allow me to take a moment to explain a bit about Writing Westward and myself. Each episode features a conversation with people writing about the North American West. Historians, journalists, novelists, poets, scientists, sociologists, and others. By showcasing their work, I hope to spark your curiosity to think more deeply about the region, its lands and environments, and the histories and experiences of the peoples who call it home. If a writer or topic intrigues you, you can find links to their work in the show notes or at writingwestward.org. And if you have a moment, please do subscribe, share links with friends, leave us a review or rating on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you're using to listen, follow us on Facebook and Twitter, and send in some feedback. Writing Westward is supported by the Charles Red Center for Western Studies at Brigham Young University, where I, Brendan Rensink, serve as Associate Director and an Associate Professor of History. For better or worse, this is a one-man operation with me playing role of host, producer, sound engineer, publicist, and everything else, all tasks for which I have no training. But I am passionate about the North American West, so this difficult work is well worth the excuse to read more books and talk to interesting people. At the end of each episode, I'll include a little bit more information about me and my scholarship and about the Red Center, our public programming and projects, and funding opportunities that you could apply for. With that, let me introduce a little bit more about today's guest and why we're talking to them. Peter Bogue is professor and Columbia chair in the history of the American West at Washington State University. He's a historian of gender, sexuality, the environment, and culture in the American West and Pacific Northwest especially. Along with countless articles, essays, and chapters, he's the author of four monographs, Environment and Experience, Settlement Culture in 19th Century Oregon, published in 1992 by University of California Press, Same-Sex Affairs, Constructing and Controlling Homosexuality in the Pacific Northwest, published in 2003 by University of California Press. Redressing America's Frontier Past, published in 2011 by the University of California Press, and which also won the Ray Allen Billington Prize for the best book in American frontier history from the Organization of American Historians, as well as multiple other honors. And most recently, the book we talk about today, Pioneering Death. The Violence of Boyhood in Turn-of-the-Century Oregon, published in 2022 by the University of Washington Press. I would also note that in 2022, the Western Historical Association awarded Bogue an, an honorary lifetime membership, a truly fitting acknowledgement for his decades of, an, of contributions and service to the field and community. In Pioneering Death, Bogue relates the horrific events of November 19, 1895, when 18-year-old Lloyd Montgomery 
shot and killed his father, mother, and a visiting neighbor on the rural Oregonian farm where they share a crop. But rather than a salacious true crime style exposition, Bogue tries to answer the why of the senseless violence by asking questions about the historical, social, economic, and cultural world that produced Lloyd Montgomery. There he finds compelling context that turn-of-the-century Oregonians proved reluctant to consider, um, rather opting to explain away the violence as a product of a spoiled, unruly youngster who was lazy and who wouldn't work, who was just after his father's money, or who was overcome by a fit of anger. The politics of public memory is at play throughout Bogue's work, revealing the darkness of frontier and rural Western history that many communities have actively suppressed in favor of rosier, affirming pioneer memorialization. In the tensions between, Bogue's work has much to say about how we continue to selectively remember our regional past in service of current needs, and the instructive importance of telling fuller histories and sitting with them, no matter how discomforting. It is in that discomfort that we might learn the most important lessons about our past and how to chart our region's present and future. Peter Bogue, welcome to Writing Westward. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh, you've made a really productive career um, as a historian of uh, the West and the Pacific Northwest, the environment, uh, gender and sexuality, probably other fields I'm missing. Um, and in a lot of these, there's ver- there's forms of violence, some overt, some subtle, but not like your most recent book, which is overtly violent. Um, I- I'm curious if this project felt anomalous to you in that way, or if you think it is a natural fit for what it is that you do as a historian. It is a natural fit. And that is because history is such a wonderful profession to be in because there is so much to explore and try to understand and make sense of. And so you said that, you know, I've done environmental history, I've done sexuality and gender, I've done art history, my current project is on art history and climbing. I, I just do things that I find interesting. So some some historians, I think, oh, you know, that's a historian of violence, that's an environmental historian, and their career is defined by that. I think what I hope is that my career will be defined by he did what he wanted to do. And so this this uh, this book is something I just long wanted to write about. And it is social and cultural history. And I am a social and cultural historian. What's really odd, though, I think about everything I've written, and this book is an example of that, is that it concerns the late 19th century uh, and the early 20th century. But when I was in graduate school, the Gilded Age was the least interesting period to me. And I know there's so much <laughs> fascinating stuff, but, but here you when, are. And when I started teaching, you know, I only wanted to do the first half of the U.S. survey. And so I had no interest in this period, but all my work is, or most of my work, is focused on that period of time. So in that that sense, this book also, you know, fits into 
this fascination I have with the end of the 19th and the beginning of the 20th centuries. So it's not really anomalous, actually. Well, it is a fascinating period. You know, it's a period of so many different kinds of transitions. And like, as you say, like being a historian is great because if you're a curious person and there's just endless things you can do um, that are endlessly entertaining and, you know, rewarding. Um, well, so my plan for today is kind of three part. First, I want to briefly talk about the events of 1895, uh, you know, uh, of this um, murder. Um and then I want to talk about how people made sense of it then and kind of what that reveals about Lloyd Montgomery's contemporary world. And then finally talk about how you've taken a different approach to make sense of it in comparison to, you know, what his contemporaries did. Um, so can you give us kind of like the quick thumbnail sketch of uh, the parasite of uh, November 19th, 1895? Yeah, so it takes place in... 1895, November 19th, 1895 is the day that it happened, late afternoon. Uh, this is in the Willamette Valley of Oregon, where most of the European-American settlement had occurred. So this was where the population center was, but it was in the countryside. There weren't very many large cities in, uh, uh, in Oregon. Um, and so it takes place on a farm, kind of the margins of the Willamette Valley, and a 18-year-old boy wasn't really quite a man, according to the gender standards of the day, kind of on the cusp of manhood. Uh, he lived at home with his parents, who were struggling farmers, and something set him off one afternoon, and he shot his mother and his father and a man who happened to be visiting at the um, farm at the time. And so that began the story, and uh, I follow the story uh, to, well, into the early 20th century, and I trace it back, uh, back to the 1840s to try to make sense of this one violent moment that took place on the late afternoon of November 19th, 1895. How did you come across this grisly tale? Well, another thing that a lot of my history has in common, the projects I work on, is they always also mean things have a personal meaning to me. And in this particular case, uh, I ran across it while I was researching my family history. So I, uh, on that side of my family, my father's mother's side, they were migrants to Oregon on the Oregon Trail, and they settled near Brownsville, Oregon, which is where this story takes place. Um, and I was doing some family history, and I went down to Brownsville. It must have been right around 1981 when I started to get interested in this stuff. And I went to the historical society, and I happened to meet some local historians and asking them about the local history, and they told me the story. So that's how I first came upon it. But it wasn't until I was working on my dissertation a few years later, which takes, which is focused on this part of the Willamette Valley, it became my first book, um, and I was in the historical um, 
the history museum again, kind of rummaging through boxes of material, trying to find anything that I could. It's an environmental history of the Willamette Valley, especially the southern Willamette Valley, tells the story of Europeans replacing indigenous people and the ecological changes that results resulted from that. And so just rummaging through random boxes at the museum because the art collections weren't that well organized at the time, looking for anything that might have a bearing on my dissertation, I finally came across the first primary source that I had seen. I knew the story, a, a little bit about it from these historians, um, but uh, I came across a, a, a photocopy of a special edition of the Brownsville Times that told in vivid detail this particular story, the murders and the murder scene and the arrival of the sheriff and the coroner and the interviews with uh, witnesses. Um, and I was so, it was a dark, gloomy January day, 1987, as many Oregon winter days are, dark and gloomy. And to be stuck back in this museum in a dark room, uh, going through these boxes, it just was fitting to come across such a grim tale. And I thought, you know, one day, this has nothing to do, or at least I thought then it had nothing to do with my dissertation. Uh, but I thought, I'm going to take a copy of this. And I stuck it in a file because I said, one day I want to do something with this story. And I, there's been so many places I've lived and taught and so many projects I've worked on. But all the while, I kept coming back to this. And occasionally, if I was in an archives that where I might find something related to the story, I would do some digging. And so I just kind of collected over the years. But And that's kind of how I came across it. But it was so grim and so, I don't know, Oregon to me <laughs> and this area of Oregon that I was studying and the darkness in my own family history that it just, it spoke to me for some reason. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm, I was reading some, I don't know if it was a blog post or something that you wrote where you you were explaining that you sometimes are drawn to the shadows and to darkness and you feel kind of almost maybe a compulsion to shed light on them, to make sense of them. Um, but between then and now, like you've written a lot of other things. So was it intentional that you set it aside? You have you, where you just feel like you weren't ready to dive into this real dark thing or were there other, other more exciting things presented themselves? Yeah, I guess it's more the latter. Uh, you know, I finished my first book on environmental history, and I continued to write some things in environmental history. And I was hoping to do another book when I lived in Idaho, teaching at Idaho State University on the Snake River Plains. And it just, I, I just couldn't get into it. And I published several articles related to that topic. Uh, and I was just, you know, what am I going to do for my next project? And so, uh, so I chose something else that meant something pers personal to me, the history of sexuality and gender. And uh, so my next book was on that. And then the third book that I wrote kind of was an offshoot of some of that research. It was more accidental than anything. And it 
people were going to know me for anything. It's the third book. (laughs) I still get called for interviews. I still had several things to do this week related to that third book. Um, And so, but I think, you know, Brendan, all along, I did collect research. um, And I just kept sticking things aside. But it also, in a way, seemed somewhat different as you started this podcast. It it seemed somewhat different from what I usually do until I was able to figure out how to make this story really fit with what my interests in this sort of history would be, because it's a social and cultural history of a young man, a boy who kills his parents. And most of everything that I had come across on the topic of parricide, which is a term that envelops patricide and matricide, uh, and it is a parricide because he kills both his father and his mother. Um, most of every anything I had kind of come across over the years were written by criminologists and psychologists, and they deal with our current times. And I, I couldn't really, I, I guess that kind of prevented me from thinking about this in historical terms. And so it took years of development as a historian to before I really could write this book. And so, you know, I floundered around for a long time and I just kept sitting it aside and doing other things that were maybe not easier to do, but just seemed to make that I could get my head around better than than this this grim story, even though the grimness is what usually touches me as a human. (laughs) Well, it's good. I mean, we all have these files of interesting things that we've set aside. And um, I'm sure you have many more, uh, you know, always more projects that we'll ever be able to get to. Uh, but again, that's the great thing about what we what we do. Um, oh, I love this profession. I really yeah. do. It's so freeing. Um, well, let's talk about what they made of the event at the time. And this does get you into some very interesting discussions of public memory and how communities choose to you know memorialize their past the things that they choose to remember or forget be it consciously or subconsciously you know there's a lot of really messy politics involved in the stories we tell um how, how did the, his contemporaries in 1890 how did they make sense of this what was their explanation for it it that's not an easy i had to write a book about it um, because there were so many different perspectives offered. I think the people closest to the triple murder, and the focus was mostly on the boy killing his parents, um, because it's, I mean, they even, you know, one newspaper editor even or, or um, a journalist who visited Lloyd when he was in jail, awaiting ultimately his, well, his trial and then ultimately his execution. 
um, you know, said, you know, people can understand maybe why you might have murdered your father, but they can't understand how it was that you could murder your mother. So patricide and matricide are such heinous crimes, culturally speaking, that the people who were closest to him seem to focus more on uh, Lloyd Montgomery um, as um, you know something as not no, as abnormal, something in him. You know, they could see they they trace back through his, to his child childhood, which wasn't very many years. You know, all the hateful and mean things and the bad words uh, that he had used over the years. And so they focused on the individual. And, you know, that's what psychology and criminology uh, in our day have mostly focused on, the um, mental state of the individual who commits such a crime or the internal relationships in the family. Um, and so that's how the people, and it makes sense because it doesn't seem to be connected to anything else except somebody going berserk. Um, and, you know, and when we think about uh, the like school shootings today, uh, sometimes they begin by, uh, you know, a person who does these things, you know, uh, having some sort of argument or altercation with uh, a f family member or parents. And so, you know, one of the big ones in more recent, well, the 18, uh, excuse me, the 1990s in the Southern Willamette Valley was the Kit Kinkle uh, who murdered his parents one day and then went to his high school the next to, and started shooting up the high school and two students lost their lives and there were a couple dozen people who were injured. Um, and uh, so, you know, there... So what was the point that I was making? <laughs> this is the problem when you want to talk to me, Brendan, is that I, <laughs> you know, go off and to all these tangents. Um, but and, so like the focus was on like his bad relationship with his parents. Yeah. Or... So, yeah. So the focus of the people in the community, knowing him, his personality, knowing his parents, knowing a bit about the family dynamics, they focused intensely on him. But when you moved out from the community, then people had offered all other types of um, perspectives. And some thought more broadly about the problems of rural life, uh, economic struggles that uh, farmers were facing, and lack of opportunities for their children. Um, and then some focused on, you know, like editors in California, there's a huge rivalry traditionally between Oregon and California, and it was especially pronounced in the 19th century because the two societies viewed themselves as so different from each other. To Oregonians, California was rooted in the gold rush and all these boisterous young men who went to the frontier and were lawless. Whereas Oregon, these settlers on the Oregon, tra uh, Oregon Trail, 
Uh, it was a settled family. And so there are these rivalries over the type of society it was. And so to uh, people in California, uh, who editors of newspapers who who tried to understand this, you know, they also focus on the dyna dy dy dynamics of the f family, but they but they also looked at the inadequacies of the Oregon legal system as partly responsible for the for this tragedy and at least the way that it played out. So there were many many perspectives offered, and so I went in different directions in this book to try to investigate those perspectives and write what Michel Foucault called the ethnology of parasite or the ethnography of parasite. You know, what's interesting about all these different perspectives is they all serve those people <laughs> or communities, right? It's like for the people closest to it, shrugging Montgomery off is just like a bad seed, a bad kid. That allows them to not really investigate. Is there something wrong with our community or our family? You know, no, no. Um, or use the Californians. This serves them wanting to denigrate Oregon. You know, right? <laughs> Get another jab in this long-standing rivalry. Um, well, this is yeah. So this is this issue that I was starting to address, and I kind of lost my way on. You know, you know, having mulled over this story for so many years and not really finding good histories of parasite where what we have are psychological evaluations of people who commit murder. Um, and so that has made it hard to understand the, the broader history. And what's one of the things that's really fascinating about the story that took place in 1895 is that in the 1980s, you know, historians were still talking about it. Um, later, in the early part of this century, when I was trying to finish up some uh, research and I went back to Brownsville, um, I didn't really tell the person at the museum what exactly I was doing. I just said the types of things I'm looking for. And so, you know, the question is, well, what are you working on? And I said, well, you know, this story from long ago about this boy who murdered his parents. Oh, the Lloyd Montgomery story. So people in that community still talk about it. It still haunts that community. But um, but it's always been the story to them of this bad boy. This So the, the memory, the public memory, the historical memory continues to dwell on, well, this is just a bad boy and he did a horrible thing. Without investigating the broader history that contributed and some of the real significant social and racial issues that Oregonians have in their history that help really to explain this. That's why I wanted to write ultimately how this book and so that was the break I had to make away from the individual Ooh. to how can I as a historian think more broadly about this? And so it does get into issues of public memory. I, I, I'm Historians make a career out of working on the topic of public memory or historical memory. That's not my field, but... Um, you're doing it. I'm well. 
trying to. I don't know if it's done very well. But um, so, yeah, so that I think ended up being, you know, one of the most fascinating journeys for me in writing this book, thinking about historical memory. Yeah. What you're able to do as a historian, you know, so different than say, and I'm not wanting to denigrate journalists, you know, but others might take this and do like a real kind of grisly true crime style, you know, exploration of this story um, and not really maybe ask some of the good questions that you end up asking kind of about the broader context. Um, let's talk about Oregon in 1895 then. What's what's the social, cultural, economic scene of rural Lynn County um, <laughs> in, in the 1890s? Are they rich, poor? Is yeah. it growing, mm-hmm. declining, crime-ridden, or peaceful? Like yeah. what's... What does Lloyd's world look like? So Lynn County, as with most of rural Oregon, was an uh, an agricultural society. So it was a society of farmers, and especially Lynn County. Um, 1895 is during the deepest parts of the 1893 Depression. Um, so some parts of the country and some areas there is beginning to be recovery, but for farmers, this is a very long depression that actually starts a decline in 1873. And after 1873, Panic, yeah. there's some good times and bad times, but overall it's a decline for farmers in terms of prices and that sort of thing. And farmers in Western Oregon uh, are going through a transition, trying to find new crops because the declining price for wheat, which was the staple. But there's also this transition here in the Pacific Northwest of the inland parts of the region, the drier parts of the interior beyond the Cascade Mountains, the intermountain west portion of the Pacific Northwest, where um, it's being opened up uh, because of new farming methods, but also transportation is much more conducive to the farming of wheat. And so that becomes the new center for the wheat industry. So farmers in what the Willamette Valley are additionally suffering because of that. And so they're searching for new types of crops. So there's this struggle um, for the farmers. So this is the world that Lloyd lives in, but his family was among the poorest of the uh, people in Lynn County. His father occasionally was unable to pay his poll tax, which was like a dollar. Um, his father never owned real estate. So he, so they're kind of like the very low end of the uh, the, the farming community or the, the status of the farmers. Now, another thing that's going on is kind of a, a larger cultural crisis. Um, so, or, or you know, the myth of Oregon, I mean, obviously there's a reality to it, but the people, the European Americans replacing the indigenous people or violently pushing them out, that's part of the story as well. So Oregon is a settlement, a society of largely white people. And there are certain laws that Oregon adopted, like many places in the American West, that 
marginalized people of color and for many years during these years, Oregon actually had a uh, clause in the constitution that African-Americans could not legally live in the state. So it was a very white community and they had a great deal of pride. They took a lot of pride in the story of the pioneers crossing the plains and making a new settlement, wresting Oregon from British and uh, control and the control of native peoples. Um, and that settler generation, the um, kind of the heroes and heroines of Oregon's foundation, they were dying off in large numbers by the 1880s and 1890s. And there were a variety of pioneer organizations that grew up to memorialize them as they were passing away. So that's also kind of a part of a cultural crisis that deeply affects the rural area. Well, it was in urban areas too, but especially rural people like the Montgomery family that Lloyd, Lloyd Montgomery that was part of, who traced their ancestry to these founders. Lloyd's grandmother was very much a part of this story. She was still living. She, she actually had uh, come across the Oregon Trail in 1846, if I recall correctly. She was like 12 years old. Her last name was Brown. Her main name was Brown. Browns are the founders of Brownsville. So this family also had these strong pioneer roots. And so that's something that also kind of plays, uh, is in the atmosphere uh, with agricultural uh, decline. So it's a period of crisis in many ways for rural people. You also had this crisis specifically like with the memorialization of that pioneer generation and the celebration of them, it sets certain ideals like here is what we are here to do. But now 50 years later, Lloyd's generation is like completely disconnected and unable to, to meet those expectations. And you argue that that's kind of eroding this, that youthful generation's um, identity or stability well, yeah. you know, and this is why I continuously go back to this period in time that I so loathed when I started working as a historian. Uh, you know, I'm very much fascinated by this transition in Western society and America specifically from kind of an early modern to a modern era. And the hope that that portends for the future, but also the nostalgia and lament for the past and worries that are happening in this moment of uh, change. Change always happens. There are always crises. But for some reason, this period, I think it's because it's the era when all my grandparents were born, you know? And so these are people who are tangible in my life. And uh, so, you know, one of the books I want to write is kind of going back to my grandparents' generation and trying to understand my family history. But that's a little bit off to the side. Uh, so, yeah, so the people, yeah, so there is this kind of this this cultural crisis and there is concern that the young people 
are not fulfilling the standards or living up to the standards that their ancestors had set. But there's also concern about what is the future for for these young people. So there are all kinds of interesting things happening that are related to that. You know, it's at this time in Oregon when reform schools are being opened for boys because they're there, there seemed to be, and there was, you know, a lot of crime, uh, a lot of unpleasantness, uh, violence, it's trauma that boys are perpetrating. They're suffering from and perpetrating. And the question is, what do you do with these boys? Do you send them to prison, which is where they used to go, where they would be mixing with hardened criminals, and there was no opportunity for boys to be reformed and perhaps be turned back into good citizens. Uh, so Oregonians and other places in the United States as well uh, open reform schools at this time. It's interesting that Oregon Reform School was built in a rural area, and one of the things that the boys had to do was to labor on farms, to learn how to become good farmers, to put them back into the society that is traditionally becoming in, it's uh, becoming in just increasingly um, urban and industrial, but here they are with these um, skills that are perhaps no longer that useful in a place where agricultural decline is all around. Yeah, I'm I'm hearing echoes of some of the other broader 1890s public discourse and consternation and anxiety, you know, about the frontier closing and, you know, Frederick Jackson. I mean, can we, I don't, I don't think we mentioned Frederick Jackson Schroeder every episode, but it seems like it, but you know, like all this worrying, like, oh no, like what's the new generation? Well, I mean, that's also thing like how are immigrants going to become Americans, but also how's this young generation going to, if kind of that yeoman, the Republican Jeffersonian yeoman farmer experience on the frontier is no longer there. Oh no, our youth, you know, um, uh, but they're talking about it, and and as you as you know, like um, opening like reform schools as a as a potential answer. Um, so you're saying that there is somewhat of a, a ubiquity of um, of I don't know, violence is the word, but uh, hardship for youth, rural youth in the West at the time. But how common is parricide in rural America in the 1890s? Uh, yeah, so. When I was working on this originally, uh, trying to understand, um, well, you know, when I was finally getting to the point uh, that this was going to be the next project that I was finally going to write, um, and trying to think about actually how to place it in context, I did a great deal of research uh, across rural America. Uh, into the perpetration of parasites. Um, and a few people have written, uh, you know, there's this one book on 19th century parasite, which is kind of a catalog of oh, oh, 100 or so of them. I don't remember exactly, but um, uh, so I was, I did do research into many others, including some here in the Pacific Northwest. But it ended up 
not being a real fruitful way for me to go about actually writing. And so some of the other parasites that you see uh, didn't make it into the book, but in, in very small ways. Uh, so they did happen. There were many of them, but of course there was no, there is no central collection agency at this time, you know, categorizing crimes. And so to actually figure out how many there were would probably be a lifelong project. You would have to comb through newspapers. You would have to look at uh, arrest records and court records. And so it's kind of diffuse. It would be really difficult to. So how common it is, is uh, difficult to, to know. You know, in our more modern times where we have better ways of uh, finding this information, you know, uh, so, so social scientists have, have written on this. And from the modern perspective, it, oh, it can't always put back onto the his, into history, say historical, uh, you know, in the late 20th century, early 21st century, you know, statistics show that it is kind of the least common form of murder uh, in the country. And the numbers are relatively low. So one researcher found, you know, during the late 20th, early 21st century, that there are only like, on average, only 248 parasites a year in the United States when you think of the millions of people. So it is relatively uncommon. Um, and so for me, you know, because it's a, I, that wasn't the question I wanted to answer was how common it was, but to just try to understand how a community responds to such, such a thing that might be rare, but is so culturally heinous. And so the commonness is not really a question, you know, I tr tried to entertain. That was, that was unimportant to me. It was what, what this murder, you know, as a window, what it can show us about a community and a community's transition uh, to a different time um, and also a community that is becoming increasingly connected to the larger world, which is part of this process of, of modernization that's taking place at this time. Yeah, and this kind of violence seems to be something that maybe doesn't belong in the in that new modern world, at least they would hope. But you, you write about how they're, you, that, that pioneer generation that's being memorialized, there's a lot of violence there, um, you know, against Native <laughs> peoples and others. And that violence at the time is not being uh, talked about or acknowledged, and it leaves kind of just this lingering, um, not like a tacit approval of that kind of violence, but by not talking about it, but people know that it happened, um, like, there's violence in the air. So like, how does this, yeah. at the time, this kind of public thinking or not thinking about their own violent past, like how how is that... How's that out there kind of in the atmosphere at the time? Well, this is a really good question and one that I don't have a very good answer for. Uh, 
And it's not that they didn't talk so much about the violence against indigenous people. So, you know, this this generation of original settlers, original, there are people there already, but, you know, to pride on uh, the founding of an American society and the far distant Northwest coast and, um, you know, creating a, a white society that where people of color are excluded from it. It was a very violent, violent, violent history. And it's not as though they didn't talk about it, but they it was part of the everyday. It was just accepted that this was okay. Um, and so it wasn't I, condemned as aberrant. It was it, it was ju- justified or okay. Right. Somehow. There were, you know, there were, you know, Mark Carpenter, uh, you know, has been working on this topic about uh, violence in early Oregon history of the pioneers against white white settlers against the indigenous people. Um, and so, you know, you might want to have him, you know, his book is going to come out, I think, in this year or next year. It's a fantastic study. I read his dissertation, and we've had lots of conversations about these. But um, it was just part of, you know, it seemed to be that there were people who did condemn, you know, some early historians, um, some important people who took a more critical view of the history, but they were quickly shunted aside. And there was a real um, endeavor by those who took more pride in the pioneer generation by trying to kind of sanitize the history. And in sanitizing the history, the way they did that was to uh, downplay the the nastiness and put this more into a patriotic lie that this was being done to create, uh, you know, to create American civilization on the Northwest Coast, to bring the Oregon country into the United States. What could be more patriotic than these people going there, settling? Um, and so, although people knew about the the violence. And they did talk about it. The way they talked about it is though it was a, a process, a natural process. It, it, you know, it wasn't aim. It wasn't immoral. It was part of patriotic duty. And so, for me, you know, how people can justify, you know, what constitutes a genocide, um, says a lot about their lack of ability to fathom the w- violence that goes on around them in their own lives and in their own homes. And so I see a connection between these things. And the people at that time, you know, especially in the local community, didn't really. So I think that's the mo- part of the book that I found the most interesting to write was the different layers of the celebration of pioneers, um, some of the stories they talked about at the time about how nasty this violence was, um, and then, you know, not looking into their own homes to under, to place blame, you know, on themselves for 
a murderous culture. I mean, that's why one of the, I mean, I think it's right. I think it's in your conclusion. Maybe the phrase you use is that Montgomery was a product, an agent, and a victim of that rural Oregon frontier history and in his contemporary settings. It and but it's so much easier, though. I mean, psychologically, for that community to say he's just a bad seed, right? And to really investigate. So, how complicit are we in our current? celebration of past violence or um yeah i don't think that's probably unique to rural oregon though no you know in fact i wish i could rewrite that passage again that you are somewhat paraphrasing because the way i wrote it uh at the time was that lloyd was you know a uh an agent uh, a victim You'll have to remind me what else did I say was product. a product of, I said, an extraordinary history. But in fact, it was a very ordinary history. And uh, so I wish I could <laughs> change that one passage from extraordinary. I mean, I think I tell really a fascinating history. And, and in the telling, it seems like it's extraordinary, but it's a very ordinary history. It's a very ordinary story. Um, and I think that's what is m most important for understanding. It's an ordinary, it happens all the time um, in the way of violence. Some things that are just, you know, they're talked about as violence and horror, but they're accepted and they're celebrated and people, uh, you know, pay money to see these things and support people who perpetrate this and offer this message um you know and then they wonder why their kids kill them i mean that's really kind of the most sobering part of all this is i mean on the one hand extraordinary uh outburst of extreme violence but how ordinary the context of it is that's 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 hard to sit with right um, how portable to the rest of the West or rural America more broadly do you think some of these lessons that you you know learned about rural youth and public memory is is this just an Oregon story or how can the rest of us think about this or use this as a way to change how we think about our past and present? Yeah. No, I don't think it's just an ordinary uh, excuse me. I don't think that this is just an Oregon story. And I think one can write similar histories of violence, domestic violence, uh, child abuse, uh, the killing of family members, and just the killing of anybody, because uh, this happened everywhere. Uh, so I, I don't think it's particularly uh, an Oregon story. I don't think it's a particularly American story. And this is, I think, as we began today, you said, you know, I'm kind of drawn to the. I did, I wrote in a, a blog for the University of Washington Press that published my work. That I'm kind of drawn to the darkness of humans. That I, I, it's probably because I just see darkness all around. So this is not just an Oregon story. It is portable to other parts of the world. That, immediate circumstances might be different, but it has to do with 
relations between people, relations to broader society, relations to the world, and what we choose to celebrate and what we choose to dismiss. That happens everywhere. I'm really persuaded by the power of, I don't know if there's a field of youth studies. I don't know if that's a thing, but you know, this Mm -hmm. book or your colleague Jeff Sanders' book Mm -hmm. um, on, you know, children during the Cold War. Mm -hmm. A few months ago, I had Molly Rosamond to talk her book, Grasslands Grown, about the prairies. I think it's an understudied or an underutilized pathway into thinking about the past. And it's a hard one because children don't always have the same voice or agency present in the historical record. So sometimes it's hard to get at. But at the same time, that's maybe why it's so promising or or, or rewarding of a field. Um, Yeah, Uh, agreed. And, you know, children have been studied for a while, but uh, long ago they were, well, and in many ways, I guess today, you know, they do, they are thought of as people without a lot of agency, and they haven't historically left many of their own documents, their own records, and so... It, it is hard to get to just you know, prejudices we have against young young people. They don't know anything, or you know, or you know, somebody else is taking care of them. But they they're not necessarily seen as people with age with agency and um, or even prejudice against our because a lot of the records we do have of people's childhoods are often you know autobiographies or things that they wrote later as an adult, right? And, and they're reading their own prejudice against themselves about like, oh, I was such a dumb kid or how immature I was. And so these later recollections of their youth are not necessarily, they're they're very colored. Um, Yeah, exactly. So it is very, I don't know, this is what makes history so interesting. But the more I do history, you know, the the more I'm convinced that we can't know. (laughs) It's just so hard to know. That's why we got to keep writing these books. Yeah. You know, um, uh, we're we're about out of time. Do you want to tell us about what you're working on next? Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. So you know, I've had a kind of a long interest in art history, and some years ago, I did a little bit of writing on Western art history on Thomas Moran when I was living in Idaho, and Thomas Moran's relationship to landscapes in Idaho, and some, you know, some literary figures and uh, and other artists too. So, you know, I'm real quite interested in uh, uh, cultural history and especially landscape painting. And um, so, I'm uh, doing a project now on the history of landscape painting in the Pacific Northwest, late 19th century. Um, and the focus of much of the art from the period is on the the mountains of Oregon and Washington, the Great Cascade Volcanoes. Now, some of these artists that I'm studying were mountain climbers, and they belong to some of the early mountaineering organizations here, such as the Mazamas and that formed in Oregon in 1894, and its predecessor, the Oregon Alpine Club. 
Um, so I'm looking at the relationship between the rise of mountain climbing as as not just a sport, but mountain climbing was about so many things. It was a sport, but it was also about scientific investigation. It was about colonialism, uh, you know, and uh, people going to these places where they believe nobody had been before and, you know, naming them and uh, bringing them into popular knowledge. And so I'm interested in the way that landscape painters through their artwork and through their activities in these organizations, how, how the ways in which landscape painting represented these ideas of mountain climbing, and in turn, how landscape painters and their the images that they chose to paint, how they chose to paint them or sketch them, influenced the direction mountaineering took. This sounds like a great excuse to go climb around the mountains a lot to me. <laughs> well, I'm um, a mountain climber, so it's something I do in my personal life. This book will be very helpful for the book I'm writing, so why don't you get yours done really quick, and then I can benefit from all of your hard work. <laughs> I'm finding that there's a lot to study and a lot to learn. But this is one of the problems by going, as I do, to different uh, topics, you know, whether it's environmental history or the history of sexuality, the history of gender, the history of violence. I always have to learn so much uh, before I can do them. So that's why my books are I've done four in my career, and it takes me a while to get them, get them out. But they're good, so it's worth <laughs> it's worth the wait. <laughs> well, thanks. Um, congratulations on this book; it's so great, and um, I really appreciate you spending all the time uh, with us today. Well, thanks for having me, and hope it turns out. All right, um, this has been great, and I hope hope to see you soon, Peter. Hey, Brendan. Take care. Bye. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you'll subscribe and listen every month. Please leave us a review on whatever app or platform you're listening through, or follow us on Facebook at Writing Westward Podcast, or on Twitter at Writing West, where you can get updates and leave comments. Writing Westward is a production of the Charles Red Center for Western Studies at Brigham Young University. We're an interdisciplinary research center that supports academic research and the promotion of public understandings about the North American West. We host regular public lectures, which we live stream, have an annual funding cycle with award, grant, and fellowship categories that nearly anyone researching or working on the region from any disciplinary approach or towards any final product can apply. Learn more at redcenter.byu.edu. That's R-E-D-D Center. Our theme music was provided by local Utah composer Micah Dahl Anderson. Find him at Micah, D-A-H-L, Dahl, Anderson, with an O, dot com. I'll put a link in the episode description. My name is Brendan Rensink. I serve as the podcast host, producer, and just about everything else. So you can direct any praise or critique my way. I'm author and editor of a number of books on the West, borderlands, native peoples, genocide studies, religion, and the environment. Recently, my book, Native But Foreign, Indigenous Immigrants and Refugees in the North American Borderlands, published by Texas A&M University Press in 2018, won the Best Historical Nonfiction Book Award from the Western Writers of America. 
In an anthology I co-edited with P. Jane Hafen, entitled Essays on American Indian and Mormon History, published by the University of Utah Press in 2019, won the Metcalf Best Anthology Book Prize from the John Whitmer Historical Association. Here at the Red Center, I'm also general editor and project manager of a great digital history, uh, public history project named Intermountain Histories. It's a free mobile app and website, uh, intermountainhistories.org, that curates student-researched and written micro-histories of the region, complete with archival photos, bibliographies, and more. To contact me about the podcast, my own research, or anything else, head to bwrensink, that's R-E-N-S-I-N-K, Dot org, or follow me on Twitter at Brendan W. Rensink. Until next month, be well, be curious, and be kind. Cheers.